Can you think of a time in your life where you really felt like family? For some of you, it could be your biological family, where you just felt at home and someone really served you. Maybe it was a meal. Maybe it was friends that opened their home for you and you just felt like you weren't a guest. You weren't someone just sharing a table. You were family. Maybe for some of you here today, this is what I'm hearing about grace, is that grace is a family. Maybe this church has been the first time you've actually tasted and experienced family. There's a, a, a band of, that I have really enjoyed following for a while, and it's led by a couple of brothers. And a lot of the songs that they sing about are all about their relationship as brothers. Uh, the band's name is called the Avit Brothers. And the song is, I'm going to sing it for you briefly. I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> it's going to be hard to not want to, you know, sing it because it's a, it's a wonderful song. But th- this particular song that he's, he's getting into is talking about if I were to die, what kind of message would I want to leave with my family members? And he says this. He says, go read the letter in my desk. Make sure my sister knows I loved her. Make sure my mother knows the same. Always remember there was nothing worth sharing. Like the love that let us share our name. It doesn't matter whether it's your biological family or your church family. We all know that feeling and that bond of being known that the Avett brothers are singing about. The name that we share together. I want you to have that image, that idea in the back of your mind as we look at John chapter 20. Because it has everything to do with the resurrection and the hope of the gospel. We're continuing our series in John's gospel. We're wrapping things up. John 20 verses 1 through 18. Last week we looked at the cross of Christ and now we're looking at the empty tomb. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white lying where the body of Jesus had lain. 
one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She saw Jesus standing. Let me say that again. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means, more precisely, my teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, awaken our souls this morning. Open our eyes. Lord, I beg you to unclog our ears that we might see afresh the wonder, the beauty, the power, and the love of God in the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. The UVA professor and renowned historian named Robert Louis Wilkin wrote in his book, The First 1,000 Years, that by 100 AD, there were fewer than 10,000 Christians out of 60 million people in the Roman Empire. And if you just do the math, that is 0.017%. That's not a lot of people. Wilkin goes on to say, by the year 250 AD, more than 1 million Christians. Now we're moving toward 2% of the population. By the year 300 AD, Christians made up, get this, 10% of the population in the ancient world. Approximately six million people. This is a group of uneducated people who are not formally trained from very diverse backgrounds following one particular Jewish rabbi amongst many Jewish rabbis that would have been around. And they were making quite the stir. We find out later in Acts chapter 17 verse 6 when, when these followers, this ragtag group goes to Thessalonica those leaders say, these men have turned the world upside down. And now they've come here also? Why? How did that happen? How did we go from 0.017% to 6 million people by the year 300? What happened? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I want to show you in John chapter 20, three reasons why Christianity exploded and why Jesus is worth following. He is worth giving everything to. First, I want us to look at the message. What is the message that we see in John chapter 20? It's very clear. It's the resurrection of Christ. That's the centerpiece. What had Jesus been saying throughout his ministry? If you take all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you total how many times Jesus talks about rising on the third day, it's 21 times. What is the message of that resurrection of Christ? Well, there's a, a lot of angles to it, 
but here's one of them that I think is applicable to all of us. You are not defined by your past. Whatever your past is. A brand new start is actually a reality. That God is not giving up on His people and His world and His mission to bless every square inch of God's creation. It means that despair and futility do not have the final word. Your discouragement, your depression, the weights that you're feeling do not have the last word if the resurrection's true. It isn't just that Jesus came to finish or complete the punishment and the shame of sin by the cross. That was last week's message. That is unbelievably good news, but that's only part of it. He also came to bring a new creation that was started with His resurrection. He came to bring a new kingdom. He came together a new citizenship, a new family, under a new Caesar, King Jesus. He did this by fully experiencing our death and decay and destruction and coming out on the other side, conquering and vindicating the name of God. Okay, so if that's what the resurrection means, where are the, the disciples then in John chapter 20? Well, did you know that the disciples had never attended an Easter Sunday church service? They didn't know about the resurrection. Yeah, they'd heard Jesus talk about it, but I want to help us understand that there was nothing about this Jesus resurrection that was consistent with their Jewish worldview. That might surprise you. It's not consistent. They weren't expecting Jesus to do this. The Sadducees, they denied the resurrection. The Pharisees affirmed it, but there wasn't a widespread understanding of resurrection. It didn't fit with their expectations. The idea of Messiah, we say now, he's the one who died on the cross for your sins. That wasn't the understanding of a Messiah in Jesus' time. A Messiah was a political revolutionary who was coming to set the Israelite people free from the bondage of the Romans. They had no image of a Messiah dying on a pagan Roman cross. That just means failure, not success. That was their expectation. That was their worldview. And then this Messiah supposedly is resurrected from the dead and leading his people. A resurrection in the middle of time in history was completely unfathomable. Yeah, Ezekiel 37 and a number of places in the Old Testament that talk about a resurrection, but that's a future judgment day. There's no concept of entering time and space and bringing resurrection. So they weren't expecting it. But you know, there's also nothing in the Greek explanation either that would prepare them for Jesus' resurrection. Now, I'm no expert on Greek philosophy, but my, the little that I do understand is the physical body was seen as inferior to the immaterial soul. Think about the physical body as nothing more than the husk to be discarded. But what really matters is the non-material, the mystical, the part that nobody sees, the soul. So you can imagine why for a Greek person or a Gentile person, the idea that Jesus rose bodily from the dead would be a little bit hard to understand. Why would you rise bodily? The body is terrible. Yuck! Get away from the body. They weren't expecting it. And just like today... Many of you here today, and maybe even your family members or friends, nothing about resurrection is consistent with our secular naturalist expectations either. Perhaps you or your friends might even be saying, look, I respect Jesus. I'm actually 
understand what you've been saying in your sermon series. I think that Jesus is a compelling figure. But the idea that Jesus was raised bodily and his body was transformed into this new state, that is utterly absurd. That is not how the natural world works. I'm simply trying to say there's nothing in the Jewish, Gentile, or our secular naturalist worldview that would make the resurrection this thing like, oh, that makes total sense. I get that. But that is the very thing that changed the early Christians, I would contend. That was the message that changed them. Here's just a handful of examples that clearly talk about the centrality of the resurrection. Acts 2, 31. The Jesus that David spoke of, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts 4, 2. The Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Acts 4, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 17, it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. He seems to be preaching a foreign divinity, the people believed, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Look, I could stand up here and give you list after list after list about how the resurrection really was the turning point bodily, not just a metaphor for new life, but a bodily resurrection in time and in place. And after this bodily resurrection, Jesus appeared not just to a handful of people, but to 500 plus people. So what difference does the message of the resurrection really mean for us? It means that we have hope in the face of despair and discouragement. It means that if Jesus truly experienced death and punishment and everything and still came out on the other side, that means you really cannot stop Jesus. He really is the true king. That he really is worthy of giving everything to. It also means that our typical sort of understanding of maybe the, the Jesus works mentality, like, hey, Jesus is cool for you. I'm more into Mormonism. Or, hey, that's cool if Jesus is, is your thing. I'm more into just being a spiritual person. That actually kind of falls apart because Jesus never claimed just to be a teacher and never claimed to be a prophet. The resurrection is, is suggesting and clearly communicating, actually, that he is the Lord. He's the King of Kings. So there's another reason why Jesus is worth everything, not just the message. I want us to also look at the messenger, what is interesting? What do we learn about Mary Magdalene? She's really described in detail here in this passage. Well, obviously, she was a woman. And it wasn't always easy to be a woman in first century Palestine. There's a collection of uh, oral sayings that rabbis would say, kind of like their interpretation of what the Bible would say, that was written around 200. But still, this gives you some sense. This is not the Bible. But this is what some rabbis taught. Here's a quote. Divorce, you can divorce a woman if she burns your food. Or if you find a prettier woman. That's, that's what was taught. That was what it was like to be a woman in the first century. The first eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection in John 20 was a woman named Mary Magdalene. 
Who was this woman? Well, we have so many Marys in the New Testament, it can be kind of hard to keep track of all of them. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Then you have Mary of Bethany. Remember, she had a sister named Martha. And they had another brother named Lazarus. Still different than Mary of Clopas, who's mentioned in John 19. This is Mary Magdalene. And we learn about her in Luke chapter 8. That this Mary, Mary Magdalene, was possessed by seven unclean spirits or demons. She was enslaved. She was tormented internally. She would have been treated as an outcast and someone... The typical mentality was, you kind of have it coming to you. If that happened to you, what did you do? You or your parents must have really screwed up, must have really messed up. And she meets Jesus, and Jesus sets her free, and her life is changed. She gave, uh, Jesus gave her hope and a future. She was a deeply broken person, and Jesus changed her life completely. She followed him as her rabbi. And it's also possible that she was wealthy. We find out in Luke chapter 8 also that she helped finance Jesus' ministry. And so we would have every reason to think that she had additional income to help him. The first messenger in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is a woman with a checkered past that Jesus dignified. In the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. The church historian Josephus said, quote, Even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because of the levity and boldness of their gender. Celsus, who oftentimes would debate against Origen, who was, Origen is a Christian, Celsus hated Christianity. One of the reasons why he hated Christianity is the absurdity that it's based upon the testimony of Mary Magdalene. He says this, uh, he mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged resurrection witness, referring to, quote, as a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. Could it be the very thing that drew Celsus away from following Christ? The very unlikeliness of Mary Magdalene being the very first eyewitness of the resurrection? Could that be the very thing that actually is the strongest argument for the historical veracity of the resurrection? If you sought to create Christianity as a myth and a story, and you really want to gain a lot of traction, wouldn't it stand to reason that you would build it on, look at these 11 disciples, or maybe even 12, right? The Judas. These 12 disciples who have strong faith, who never looked back, who never wavered, who are right there for Jesus no matter what. That's not the picture that we have. Isn't it remarkable to see the high value that Jesus places on women in a culture that did not value women at all. Mary Magdalene was going to anoint Jesus' body, and she was overwhelmed by sadness. She loved Jesus. Now, some of us have seen Da Vinci Code or read the book. Try to, like, get that out of your mind. There's nothing in the New Testament that would make us think that Mary Magdalene had a romantic relationship with Jesus or was a prostitute in any way. We have no reason to think that. She loved Jesus with purity and passion and affection. She loved him. She's there at the tomb. There's two angels ask her, why are you weeping, Mary? And then in verse 14, Jesus asks the same question. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Here she is talking to Jesus. She sees him. But does she see him? She thinks he's the gardener. What changes Mary? She sees with her eyes, but something happens. Verse 16, Then Jesus said to Mary, Mary. And immediately she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means my teacher, my master, my God. When she heard her name, It changed everything. Jesus loves me. He cares about me. What I'm going through. Isn't there something powerful about hearing your name? Imagine going to uh, an event where someone meets you, and then the very next time they walk right up to you and say, Hey, welcome back. And what do you say when you turn to your friend? I can't believe she remembered my name. It means so much to us, doesn't it? That we're not just a number. We're not just a concept. But we're a person. See if this sounds familiar. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and no one will snatch them out of my hand and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. What difference does this really make to think about the messenger that Jesus called? I think that many of us in this room, I I don't want to make assumptions, I have a strong suspicion many of us might be thinking, look, I believe in Jesus believe in the Bible. I just don't really believe it's really true for me and what I'm really going through today. I mean, it's true for my roommates. It's true for my parents. It's true for my co-workers, my roommates, whatever. I don't really feel, I don't really feel anything. I don't really feel like he cares about me. Jesus changed an outsider and gave Mary hope in a future. He blessed her. He valued her. No matter your mistakes, no matter your loneliness, you can feel so lost at times. No matter your struggles, no matter your doubts, no matter your sadness, no matter your fears, your mental aptitude is not a a problem, your emotional state, your church background, your financial status, what race you are, what class you are, what gender you are. None of those things qualify you before God and none of those things disqualify you before God. The only thing that qualifies you before God is Jesus Christ and His power and His strength. What changed everything for Mary? She had been with Jesus for over three years. Hearing her name. 
Perhaps even this morning, Christianity is moving in your heart from a concept and an idea to a person. When this gets into our desires and our dreams and our imaginations, a glimmer of hope begins. We need to look at this message. We need to consider the messenger. But also, I want us to look at the mission. What is the mission? Look at verse 17. Jesus said to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Does that strike anyone in here as a little bit strange? Why would Jesus say that? Well, obviously, Jesus is not anti-touch. We find out in just a few verses later that uh, Thomas is doubting, and he invites Thomas to feel the wounds, the scars on his body, to help him see, I really did rise from the dead bodily. But what does that mean? If it doesn't mean that Jesus is not affectionate or doesn't want to be close with his followers, what does it mean? I think it's likely that Mary thought that she might lose Jesus again. More weeping, more sorrow, more sadness. Did you catch that Mary shows up first, goes to the tomb, goes back and tells the disciples. The disciples sprint. They look in the tomb. And then they go back home. But not Mary. She continues to weep and is sorrowful. You get the sense that she's thinking, I'm not going to let you get away from me again. You are my Savior and my Lord. I'm not going to let go of you. But Jesus' mission, friends, was even bigger than a moment of an embrace. Jesus came to share a love that will not only fill Mary's arms, but flood joy peace. Earlier in the sermon series, we preached John 14 and John 16. And Jesus said, it's actually to your advantage that I leave. Do you remember that? It's actually a good thing that I'm going to be leaving. And his disciples are like, what? How could that be a good thing? And do you remember why it's a good thing? Because when I leave and I complete the mission that the Father has given to me, then I can send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. This Holy Spirit will pour the truth and the power and the love of God into our doubting, sorrowful, fickle hearts. Not just an embrace with our arms, but to pour in the gospel when we desperately need it every single day. Jesus is saying, you think you love me now. Wait until the Spirit of God comes and floods your heart with affection and takes up residence in the place of your longings and your desires and your imagination. You know that all of our hearts and our imaginations are already captured by something this morning. Jesus is claiming to be the thing that find, that, where you will find true satisfaction and meaning. The thing that will actually capture our hearts. Notice Jesus has a mission for Mary. Verse 18, did you catch this? Go and tell the disciples. You see, recipients of God's grace always become givers of God's grace. It's unavoidable. Think about when you've seen a really good Netflix series, or maybe you've seen a series like, I really enjoyed the series Ted Lasso. 
We can talk later about the language and we can have that conversation. I'm not encouraging everyone to watch it. I found that series compelling. It was like every time I had dinner or lunch, I'm like, hey, hey, have you, have you ever heard of Ted Lasso? I was bringing up a conversation. Or maybe you've read a book. You're like, you've got to check out this book. This is insane. Or you've got to check out this cat video. It is absolutely the greatest. This meme is hilarious. We do it all the time. When you find something that is captivating and meaningful, you cannot help but share it with others. This is not like a Jesus thing. This is a humanity thing. We do this all the time. But the argument of the resurrection is the resurrection is so powerful, so meaningful, so substantive that we can't help but send it out and share that good news with everyone. Because those that have received God's grace become givers of God's grace. But did you notice that Jesus does, actually doesn't call them disciples here? Look at the text. What does he call them? He says, my brothers. Not my turncoats. The deniers, the failures, the losers, the people who quit on me when I needed them the most. The people who didn't have enough faith, who were weak. That's not what he said. He said, Mary, you go tell my brothers. It is not only an amazing truth that we are fully forgiven and that we are fully righteous before God our Father. That is amazing. It's not only gospel truth to know that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit forever and He is telling us the truth of God's love and power and strength in our life forever even when we doubt and forget, but it's even better. We're not treated as a merely forgiven person that God tolerates. We are treated as family. And I think every single one of us in here need to really wrestle with that. Many of us have had family situations that have been very hard and difficult. Many of us long to have that family. Jesus says if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Him, He calls you His, your brother. We're brothers and sisters. That God is our Father. That we are adopted into God's family. Friends, I think so many of us here today, you believe in Jesus. You believe you're forgiven. You believe that you're declared righteous. You believe God's never going to forgive or give up on you. But you don't live. I don't live as members of God's family. That we're all in. And we didn't do anything to deserve it. It's all God's grace. We have all the privileges and rights of sonship because of the work of Jesus. Jesus says to you, even though you've quit on me, even though you're ashamed of me, even though you don't want to talk to your coworkers and your friends about Jesus, you are my brother. And we have the same Father in heaven. You know what's going to motivate us to really love the people in Rockbridge County, the people you go to school with, the people that you're on the same street with, is not browbeating one another and saying, you need to get your act together and get more serious and sold out for God. That's going to last like five seconds. You know what's going to really ignite our hearts? Is when we know that God is our Father. 
that we know that His love for us is not contingent upon how good we do things. When we know that God is our Father, we can't wait to grab a cup of coffee or a meal with a friend. When we know in our soul that we are adopted, we can hang in there with those neighbors or friends in grace because we remember how patient Jesus has been with us. Jesus says this, or John writes this at the end of his gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Every week, there's an invitation. Jesus is saying, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to the resurrection, friends? What's your explanation? What's your source of hope? What's life all about? I invite you, just take one step closer and consider who Jesus is. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us, to forgive us, to stand in our place, and ultimately to conquer death and to bring life. Lord, we are a forgetful people, and I pray that we would, by your grace, remind each other of who you are and who we are in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.